You're listening to a podcast from the 2012 Norfolk and Norwich Festival, brought to you by writer Centre Norwich. This podcast features poet laureate Caroline Duffy performing alongside the musician John Sampson. Hi, welcome to Pouch. Welcome to this, the penultimate night of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival. I'm Sam Ruddock, Programme Manager at Writer Centre Norwich, and I'm delighted to welcome you here for what is going to be a fantastic night of music, of poetry, and of the spaces in between. What a few weeks it's been for the arts, for literature, for, for all forms of arts in Norwich. Um, not only is this the 14th night of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival, we've had events with Alan de Bottom sold out here, Alan Moore and Ian Sinclair sold out here, a fantastic uh, live streamed trial against Europe from Stockholm, and some Afghani poets in the Norfolk and Norwich Millennium Library. But three weeks ago, Norwich was named as by UNESCO as England's first city of literature. We're already great at literature, we're already great at art in general, but what this is going to mean is that we can now do everything that we do better, bigger, and on a national and an international stage. We have plans to build an international centre for writing, which will allow us to to, to do so much good work, we'll be able to work with school children to inspire and infuse them and give them the skills to commit and to, and to work in a, in a, in a demanding future. We'll be able to, to give writers the opportunities to hone and develop their skills in a city which supports, nurtures and develops them. And for audiences like everyone here, there will be so many more events like this coming. Just next month, for instance, we'll be back here celebrating UNESCO in a big way. We have events as part of our World's Literature Festival. We've got writers from around the world. We've got Joe Shapcott, we've got Jeanette Winterson, we've got Teju Cole, all coming to Norwich. Right here in this venue in June, we will have events with Nobel Laureate J.M. Schertzia, with Anna Funder and Tim Parks. And our headline for the week, we've got Michael Andarche, author of The English Patient, coming to talk with, in conversation with uh, the Pakistani author, Camilla Shamsi. There's so much going on, but that's enough of the kind of my, my, my selling everything to you. <laughs> One of the reasons um, that Norwich has been named a city of literature is because there are endless, fantastic organisations already working here. One of those is the Rialto, who we're delighted to be partnering together with on this event. This is the third year that we've partnered as part of the Norfolk and Norwich Festival, and they really do do some amazing work. Um, the Rialto magazine was set up in 1984, the first issue at that autumn had poems in it from Margaret Atwood, from George Barker, Gavin Ewart, and Miroslav Holob. It also had four poems from the then not-so-well-known Caroline Duffy. In the years since, both Rialto and Caroline have gone on to have great, great lives. Duffy's first collection, Standing Female Nude, was published in 1985 and won a Scottish Arts Council Award. Selling Manhattan won a Somerset Maugham Award. Meantime, won the Whitbread Poetry Award. You're getting a rhythm here. The World's Wife was a World Book Night selection. Rapture carried off the T.S. Eliot Prize. And her latest collection, The Bees, recently won the Costa Book of Poetry Book of the Year Award. In May 2009, she was appointed Poet Laureate, a role that she has delivered with aplomb. She has recently composed poems in celebration of the Olympics and the Queen's Jubilee. Her latest book, Jubilee Lines, features 60 poets, 60 of our finest poets. They really are great. Uh, writing 60 poems, each inspired by a single year in the Queen's reign. Tonight, she's reading alongside musician, composer, um, John Sampson, who has been kind of 
a wonderfully popular and celebrated musician for the last 30 years, both in the UK and across Europe, really. His menagerie of instruments um, on this table in front of me, you're going to love some of the things he's got here, um, and we're in for a treat. We're delighted to work so closely with the Rialto to bring this sort of event, but most of all, we're delighted now to welcome to the stage Caroline Duffy and John Sampson. Back in Norwich, I, uh, I was uh, uh, today. I went to the art centre where there's a caricature of me from 30 years ago. I must have been very young. <laughs> here's, the, here's the tune from Scotland from the Fairy Dance. I know all about your wild dancing here in Norwich, so feel free. <laughs> Don't try this at home. You need a very large mouth. Luckily. <coughs> to English, but in Scots I tend to call it a daft wee whistle. <laughs> so here's a, a tune for you, and I know you all sing. So this is over the sea to sky. I know there's a bridge, well I know that time. Sing along, here we go. Once again, I pause around it.
Laureate Carolyn Duffy. Thank you very much. The Queen gave John to me. <laughs> want you anymore. <laughs> and um, fantastic news about the um, status from UNESCO. It's wonderful. I first came um, to Norwich um, as a writing resident in 1985. Um, so my connections here are very fun and go back a long way. And um, of course the Rialto um, was the first sort of significant poetry magazine which took me seriously. It was very difficult um, in 1984 as a young woman to be published. Um, I remember um, winning the national poetry competition around that time and at the awards ceremony I was introduced as a poetess. So the reaction has always been very important to me and it's wonderful to be here tonight. I don't know if there's a man called David Hunt in the audience. He sent me a lovely letter. Um, he's doing a poetry tree for a soldier, um, I think in Afghanistan, in Holt, putting lines of this poem on a, a tree near the War Memorial. So I, I'd like to read that for him. And um, in <coughs> the collection The Bees, I'm going to be reading new poems and old poems this evening. Um, there are two what I think of um, as resurrection poems. The first one's a very personal poem about my mother's death, which ends the collection, but in fact was the first poem I wrote in the book, and, and that poem very much informs this poem, Last Post, which is, um, I suppose, a war poem. And I don't think it's possible in our century to write a war poem without remembering the great poets of the First World War, who I think changed in this poetry forever. Um, the poetry is in the pity largely by being truthful. So I quote Wilfred Owen here. Last post. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If poetry could tell it backwards, true, begin, that moment shrapnel sigh of you to the stinking mud. But you get up, amazed, watch bled, bad blood run upwards from the slime into its wounds, see lines and lines of British boys rewind back to their trenches, kiss the photographs from home. Mothers, sweethearts, sisters, younger brothers not entering the story now to die and die and die. Dulce, no. Decorum, no. Pro patria mori, you walk <coughs> away. You walk away. Drop your gun, fixed bayonet, like all your mates do too. Harry, Tommy, Wilfred, Edward, Bert, and light a cigarette. There's coffee in the square, warm French bread. And all those thousands dead, are shaking dried mud from their hair and queuing up for home. 
Freshly alive, a lad plays Tipperary to the crowd released from history. The glistening, healthy horses fit for heroes, kings. You lean against the wall, your several million lives still possible and crammed with love, work, children, talent, English beer, good food. You see the poet tuck away his pocketbook and smile. If poetry could truly tell it backwards, then it would. And that poem led to um, a poem that I published last Christmas, a poem called The Christmas Truce, <coughs> um, which John's going to join me in. And um, in this poem I look at that wonderful Christmas Eve in 1914, where inexplicably, without any, um, being impossible, any conversation across no man's land, um, the troops on both sides didn't shoot, didn't fight, put down their weapons. And this lasted until midnight on um, what would be Boxing Day, and then the war began again. And at the time it was not spoken about, actively suppressed um, by the authorities. But I think it has a lot of resonance for us still. The Christmas truce. Christmas Eve. In the trenches of France, the guns were quiet. The dead lay still in no man's land. Freddy, France, Friedrich, Frank. The moon, like a medal, hung in the clear, cold sky. Silver frost on barbed wire, strange tinsel, sparkled and winked. A boy from Stroud stared at a star to meet his mother's eyesight there, an owl swooped on a rat on the glove of a corpse. In a copse of trees behind the lines, a lone bird sang. A soldier poet noted it down, a robin holding his winter ground. Then silence spread and touched each man like a hand. Somebody kissed the gold of his ring, a few lit pipes. Most in their greatcoats huddled, waiting for sleep. The liquid mud had hardened at last in the freeze. But it was Christmas Eve. Believe, belief thrilled the night air, where glittering rhyme on unburied suns treasured their stiff hair. The sharp, clean midwinter smell held memory. On watch, a rifleman scowled the terrain. No sign of life, no shadows, shots from snipers, knout to note to report. The frozen foreign fields were acres of pain. Then, flickering flames from the other side danced in his eyes. As Christmas trees in their dozens shone, candlelit on the parapets, 
and they started to sing all down the German lines. Men who were drowned in mud, be gassed, or shot, or vaporised by falling shells, or lived to tell, heard for the first time then, Stilenacht, Heiligenacht, Eilischlacht, Einsteinwacht. Kalliad, the sun was a sudden bridge from man to man, a gift to the heart from home or childhood, some place shared. When it was done, the British soldiers cheered. A Scotsman started to bawl the first Noel and all joined in, till the Germans stood, seeing across the divide the sprawled, mute shapes of those who had died. All night, along the western front, they sang the enemies, carols, hymns, folk songs, anthems in German, English, French, each battalion quired in its grim trench. So Christmas dawned, wrapped in mist, to open itself and offer the day like a gift for Hugo, Herman, Henry, with whistles, waves, cheers, shouts, laughs. Tommy. Merry Christmas, Fritz. A young Berliner brandishing schnapps was the first from his ditch to climb. A Shropshire lad ran at him like a rhyme. Then it was up and over every man to shake the hand of a foe as a friend or slap his back like a brother would, exchanging gifts of biscuits, tea, McConaughey stew, ticklers, jam for... Cognac, sausages, cigars, beer, sauerkraut, or chase six hares who jumped from a cabbage patch, or find a ball and make of a battleground a football pitch. I showed him a picture of my wife. He thought her beautiful, he said. They buried the dead then, hacked spades into hard earth again and again, till a score of men were at rest, identified, blessed. Der Herr ist mein Hirt, my shepherd, I shall not want. And all that marvellous festive day and night, they came and went, the officers, the rank and file, their fallen comrades side by side, beneath the makeshift crosses of midwinter graves, beneath the shivering shy stars, and the pinned moon, and the yawn of history, the high bright bullets which each man later only aimed at the sky.
Now, the change of tack completely given by Trumhorn. Of course, an instrument used a lot in the 16th uh, century. And here's a tune by Henry VIII, uh, who um, was allegedly anyway, uh, a serial killer. He's um, <laughs> one of his uh, cheeky little tunes, Pastime of Good Company. If you take a closer look at it, it's what we in Scotland would probably call a piece of coo. <laughs> it's got a very mellifluous sound, this. See what you think. Some older poems from the world's wife mm -hmm. for a little while. 
Um, I suppose what I was doing in, in the poems in the world, wife, were taking all the stories or characters that I'd loved um, from childhood, from my school days, and um, celebrating them by retelling them as Shakespeare um, shows as we, we can and should do. Um, sometimes I wanted to subvert or find something hidden in what was very familiar. And the very first story I wrote was looking at um, Ovid's um, version of Midas, where he's granted a wish by the gods and asked that everything that he touches turns to gold. And as a child, I was enthralled by this story, loved it. But as an adult writer, I felt very queasy when I began to imagine perhaps being uh, Midas's lover shortly after the wish was granted. <laughs> so here is Mrs. Midas, <laughs> a woman of our time. She's quite a good cook. She's in her kitchen. Everything's going well. She's poured a slug of cooking wine. And she looks through the kitchen window down into her garden and there she sees her husband Midas at the end of the garden up to no good. <laughs> Mrs. Midas. It was late September. I'd just poured a glass of wine and begun to unwind while the vegetables cooked. The kitchen filled with the smell of itself, relaxed, its steamy breath gently blanching the windows. So I opened one, then with my fingers wiped the other's glass like a brow. He was standing under the pear tree snapping a twig. Now the garden was long and the visibility poor, the way the dark of the ground seems to drink the light of the sky, but that twig in his hand was gold. And then he plucked a pear from a branch, we grew fundamental or tongue. And it sat in his palm like a light bulb. On. I thought to myself, is he putting fairy lights in that tree? He came into the house. The doorknobs gleamed. He drew the blinds, you know the mind. I thought of the field of the cloth of gold and of Miss Macready. He sat in that chair like a king on a burnished throne. The look on his face was strange, wild, vain. I said, what in the name of God is going on? She started to laugh. I served up the meal. For starters, corn on the cob. Within seconds, he was spitting out the teeth of the rich. He toyed with his spoon and mine and with the knives and forks. He asked where was the wine. I poured with a shaking hand a fragrant bone-dry white from Italy, then watched as he picked up the glass, goblet, golden chalice, drank. It was then, as I started to scream, he sank to his knees. After we both calmed down, I finished the wine on my own, hearing him out. I made him sit on the other side of the room. <laughs> keep his hands to himself. <laughs> I locked the cat in the cellar. <laughs> I moved the phone. The toilet, I didn't mind. <laughs> I couldn't believe my ears how he'd had a wish. Look, we all have wishes. Granted. 
but who has wishes granted <laughs> him? Do you know about gold? It feeds no one. Aurum, soft, untarnishable, slaked no thirst. He tried to light a cigarette. I gazed, entranced, as the blue flame played on its luteous stem. At least, I said, you'll be able to give up smoking for good. <laughs> Separate bed. <laughs> In fact, I put a chair against my door, near petrified. He was below, turning the spare room into the tomb of Tutankhamun. <laughs> We were passionate then, in those halcyon days, unwrapping each other rapidly like presents, fast food. But now I feared his honeyed embrace, the kiss that would turn my lips to a work of art. And who, when it comes to the crunch, can live with a heart of gold? <laughs> that night, I dreamt I bore his child, it's perfect all limbs, its little tongue like a precious latch, its amber eyes holding their pupils like flies. My dream milk burned in my breasts, I woke to the streaming sun. So you had to move out. With a caravan in the wilds and a glade of its own, I drove him up under cover of dark, he sat in the back. And then I came home, the woman who married the fool who wished for gold. At first I visited, odd times, parking the car a good way off, then walking. You knew you were getting close, golden trout on the grass. <laughs> One day a hare hung from a larch, a beautiful lemon mistake, and then his footprint glistening next to the river's path. He was thin, delirious, hearing, he said, the music of Pan from the woods. Listen, that was the last straw. What gets me now is not the idiocy or greed, but lack of thought for me, pure selfishness. I saw the content of the house and came down here. I think of him in certain lights, dawn, late afternoon, and once a bowl of apples stopped me dead. I miss most, even now, his hands, his warm hands on my skin, his touch. character from um, Ovid's Metamorphosis, wonderful book, Shakespeare's favourite book, I think, um, is Tiresias. Um, in fact, I first heard of Tiresias um, when doing A-level English and reading <coughs> Eliot's great poem, The Wasteland, and Tiresias is, is mentioned there. And I had a very good English teacher who sent us all back to the original. And in the original story, I, I read that Tiresias, um, probably a middle-aged man, had gone out walking one day in the woods. 
and on his walk he'd come across two snakes attempting to couple. No, I don't know how snakes do that. Um, anyway, he didn't like the idea of what was going on, so he prevented it by beating them to a pulp with his walking stick, as you would. And um, of course, the Greek gods were always looking down on human activity, and they were furious at this cruelty to um, the snakes, and they punished Tiresias then and there um, by turning him into a woman for seven years. <laughs> Like being poet, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then at the end, he could be, be a man again. So, I wondered if you were married to Tiresias, what, how would you cope when you came home thus punished? From the war? And um, sticking with Shakespeare, that the, my poem is very much informed by his um, wonderful sonnet. Let me not to the marriage of true man's impediment. Love is not love which alters where it alteration finds. And boy, did she find alteration. <laughs> so, Mrs. Tyrese's. All I know is this. He went out for his walk, a man, and came home female. Out the back gate with his stick, the dog, wearing his gardening kecks, an open-necked shirt, and a jacket in Harris tweed I patched at the elbows myself, whistling. He liked to hear the first cuckoo of spring, then write to the times. <laughs> I'd usually heard it days before. But I never let on. I heard one that morning while he was asleep, just as I heard at about 6pm, a faint snare of thunder up in the woods and felt sudden heat at the back of my knees. He was late getting back. I was brushing my hair at the mirror and running a bath when a face swam into view next to my own. The eyes were the same but in the shocking V of the shirt were breasts. When he uttered my name in his woman's voice, I passed out. <laughs> Life has to go on. I put it about that he was a twin, and this was his sister come down to work, while he himself was working abroad. <laughs> and at first I tried to be kind, blow-drying his hair till he learnt to do it himself, <laughs> lending him clothes till he started to shop for his own, sisterly, holding his soft, new shape in my arms all night. Then he started his period. <laughs> One week in bed. <laughs> <laughs> Three painkillers four times a day. And later, a letter to the powers that be demanding full paid menstrual leave 12 weeks per year. <laughs> I see him still, his selfish, pale face, p 
peering at the moon through the bathroom window. The curse, he said, the curse. Don't kiss me in public, he snapped the next day. I don't want folk getting the wrong idea. It got worse. <laughs> After the split, I would glimpse him out and about, entering glitzy restaurants on the arms of powerful men, though I knew for sure there'd be nothing of that going on if he had his way, or on TV, telling the women out there how, as a woman himself, he knew how we felt. His flirt's smile. The one thing he never got right was the voice, a cling peach slithering out from its tin. I gritted my teeth. <laughs> and this is my lover, I said, the one time we met a glittering ball under the lights among tinkling glass and watch the way he stared at her violet eyes at the blaze of her skin at the slow caress of her hand on the back of my neck and saw him picture her bite her bite at the fruit of my lips and hear my red wet cry in the night she shook his hand, saying, how do you do? <laughs> and I noticed then his hands, her hands, the clash of their sparkling rings and their painted nails. Tiny one I stole from the diary of the wife of Charles Darwin. Mrs. Darwin. 7th of April 1852. Went to the zoo. I said to him, something about that chimpanzee over there reminds me of you. I know that's really cheap. <laughs> And the last one I'd like to read from The World's Wife is probably my favourite of all the old stories, um, the story of Faust. And you remember that Faust sold his soul to Mephistopheles, to the devil. And um, he sold it for um, years of unimaginable power and wealth. Kind of like Nick Clegg. <laughs> Um, Faust got a lot more years than he's going to. <laughs> and Faust could time travel, he could do magic. Nothing was denied, but at the end of, of the 24 or 25 years, um, he had to pay up with his soul. So here's this story told by Mrs. Faust, who isn't a very nice person at all. She's a, a big consumer, very materialistic, and she met fast when they were students at university um, and after an on off actually I know the university I have to say it was UEA <laughs> um, kind of literally relationship isn't it? Um, she married him so here's Mrs. Fast first things first I married fast we met a student, shacked up, split up, made up, hitched up, got a mortgage on a house, 
flourished academically, BA, MA, PhD, no kids. Two town bathrooms, hers, his. We worked, we saved, we moved again, fast cars, a boat with sails. A second home in Wales, the latest toys, computers, mobile phones. We prospered, moved again. Fast face, clever, greedy, slightly mad. I was as bad. I grew to love the lifestyle, not the life. He grew to love the kudos, not the wife. He went to whores. I felt not jealousy, but chronic irritation. I went to yoga, tai chi, feng shui, therapy, colonic, irritation. <laughs> and Faust would boast at dinner parties of the cost of doing deals out east, then take his lust to Soho in a cab, to say the least, to lay the ghost, get lost, meet pampers, feast. He wanted more. I came home late one winter's evening, hadn't eaten. Faust was upstairs in his study in a meeting. I smelled cigar smoke, hellish, oddly sexy, not aloud. I heard Faust and the other laugh aloud. Next thing the world, as Faust said, spread its legs. First politics, safe seat, MP, right hon, KG, then bounce offshore, abroad, and business, vice chairman, chairman, owner, lord, Enough? Encore. Fast was cardinal, pope, knew more than God, flew faster than the speed of sound around the globe, lunched, walked on the moon, golfed, holding one, with a fat Havana on the sun. Then, back to hunch, invested in smart bombs, in harms. Fast dealt in arms. Fast got in deep, got out, bought farms, cloned sheep. Fast surfed the internet for like-minded Bo Peep. <laughs> As for me, I went my own sweet way. Saw Rome in a day, spun gold from hay. Had a facelift, had my breasts enlarged, my buttocks tightened. Went to China, Thailand, Africa, returned, enlightened. Turned 40, celibate, teetotal, vegan, <coughs> Buddhist. <laughs> 41. Went blonde, went redhead, went brunette, went native, went ape, went berserk, went bananas, went on the run alone, went home. Fast within. A word, he said. I spent the night being pleasured by a virtual Helen of Troy. Face that runs a thousand ships, I kissed its lips. Thing is, I've made a pact with Mephistopheles, the devil's boy. He's on his way to take away what's owed, reap what I sowed. For all these years of gagging for it, going for it, rolling in it, I've sold my soul. At this, I heard a serpent's hiss, tasted evil, knew its smell. A scaly devil hand poked up right through the terracotta Tuscan towers at Faust's bare feet and dragged him, oddly smirking, there and then, straight down to hell. Oh well. <laughs> Fast will left everything, the yacht, the several homes, the Learjet, the helipad, the looted set, etc. the lots to me. So, when I got ill, it hurt like hell. I bought a kidney with my credit card, then I got well. I keep fast secret still, 
the clever, cunning, callous <coughs> bastard didn't have a soul to sell. My daughter's actually a graduate of the University of East Anglia. I forgot about that. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a special guest this evening. Is the Federate Zuzan. He is none other than Wolfgang Allardyce Mozart. <laughs> I know he's got a Scottish accent. It's just one of these things. <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> things were tough. <laughs> I'd like to play for you one of my greatest hits. Um, either kind of act to music, or a little light music. Normally, of course, we'd have the whole orchestra here. Mm, that's the cuts. The cuts. <laughs> but due to the cuts, there'll just be me on one instrument. <laughs> so the way we're looking at the past to look to the future, if the cuts continue, this is what you may end up with. Some poems from the last collection I've published to be. Um, I called it that because I noticed that when I was putting the poems together about two thirds of the way through, looking at what I'd written over two or three years, that the B, without my choosing it, had kind of drifted in as an image um, in many of the poems. And uh, it, the B became a subject thereafter of a few. Of course, poets have always loved and written about bees, as we all love bees. A great um, tradition of um, bee poems. And I think the earliest I'm aware of is um, Virgil's um, section of his Georgics, where he celebrates not only the civilization of the beehive, but 
advises how best to keep them. So this is a little tribute or response to that <coughs> great poem, Virgil's Bees. Blessed as gift of sweetness, honey from the bees, inspired by clover, marigold, eucalyptus, thyme, the hundred perfumes of the wind. Bless the beekeeper who chooses for her hives a site near water, violet beds, no you, no echo. Let the light lilt, leak, green or gold pigment for queens. Enjoy the inexplicable, but there, in harmony of willow herb and stream, of summer heat and breeze, each bee's body act its brilliant flower, lover stand strumming on fragrance smitten. For this, let gardens grow where bee lines end, sighing in roses, saffron blooms, budlier, where bees prey on their knees, sing, praise in pear trees, plum trees. Bees are the batteries of orchards, gardens, guard them. We seem um, over the past couple of years to be having lots of national royal um, events and um, I think that's a, a lovely opportunity for poets we have in this country to um, usher, to celebrate, to comment and um, the Jubilee Lines book has poets from Danny Absey writing about 1953 right through to uh, 2012, a different poet for every year. It's fascinating to, to look at our history um, through poetry in that way. Also at the time of the um, wedding of um, Prince William and Catherine Middleton, I was able, to, I think, to gather around 30 poets to look again at the epithalamium um, terms that we might use at weddings or civil partnerships. And again, that, that was a fascinating um, gathering of poets. And I'd like to read my own poem, my own kind of wedding poem. And in my poem, I took the idea of the, the ring, the simple wedding ring. Um, but I, I sought it in the everyday, in the natural world, <coughs> um, the way when you are very much in love, you see affirmation of coincidence or symbols of your love wherever you look. Rings. I might have raised your hand to the sky to give you the rings surrounding the moon. Or look to twin the rings of your eyes with mine. Or added a ring to the rings of a tree by forming a hand-held circle with you. Thee. Or walked with you where a ring of church bells looped the fields, or kissed a lipstick ring on your cheek, a pressed flower, or met with you in the ring of an hour and another hour. I might have opened your palm to the weather, turned, turned till your fingers were ringed in rain, or held you close, they were playing our song, in the ring of a slow dance, or carved our names in the rough ring of a heart, or heard the ring of an owl's hoot as we headed home in the dark. 
or the ring first thing of chorusing birds waking the house, or given the ring of a boat rowing the lake, or the ring of swans monogamous, too, or the watery rings made by the fish as they leaped and splashed, or the ring of the sun's reflection there. I might have tied a blade of grass, a green ring for your finger, or told you the ring of a sonnet by heart, or bought you a lichen ring found on a warm wall, or given a ring of ice in winter, or in the snow sung with you the five gold rings of a carol, or stolen a ring of your hair, or whispered the word in your ear that brought us here where nothing and no one is wrong, and therefore I give you this ring. Cold. It felt so cold, the snowball which wept in my hands. And when I rolled it along in the snow, it grew till I could sit on it, looking back at the house, where it was cold when I woke in my room, the windows blind with ice, my breath undressing itself on the air. Cold, too, embracing the torso of snow which I lifted up in my arms to build a snowman, my toes burning cold in my winter boots, my mother's voice calling me in from the cold. And her hands were cold, from peeling and pooling potatoes into a bowl, stooping to cup her daughter's face, a kiss for both cold cheeks, my cold nose. But nothing so cold as the February night I opened the door in the chapel of rest, where my mother lay, neither young nor old, where my lips, returning her kiss to her brow, knew the meaning of cold. <clears throat> poem I thought I would never write this next one. Um, the post office. That's at the end of 2012 when we write our letters or postcards that we're no longer to put the name of the county on. Not needed, we're just to put the postcard. So we'll all do that, won't we? <laughs> and when I read this, I was consumed by a kind of middle aged fury. <laughs> and, um, I wondered why I, I felt so angry about this, and I got it down to two, two reasons, um, quite predictable reasons. The first is a poetry reason, and like many poets, I love naming and I love using the litany, the list um, in my poems. One of my favourite short lyric poems is that lovely Adelstrop by Edward Thomas, written before the First World War, and you'll know in his poem, his steam train chugs to a halt in the middle of England, and he listens to where he is and names where he is. 
So I, I quote that at the end of my poem. The second reason <coughs> after poetry was childhood. And as a child, I loved writing my name and address in all my reading books. I, I wasn't allowed to, but I did it anyway. Um, and in my case, it would be Caroline Duffy, 21 Poplar Way, Moss Pit, Stafford, Staffordshire, England, Great Britain, Europe, <laughs> the world, the universe, the solar system, my parents were Catholic, near God. <laughs> And uh, you really need the county in there to do that properly. <laughs> so here is my radical protest poem against the post office <laughs> called The Counties. But I want to write to an Essex girl, greeting her warmly. But I want to write to a Shropshire lad, brave boy home from the army. And I want to write to the Lincolnshire poacher to hear of his hair, and to an aunt in Bedfordshire who makes a wooden hill of her stare. <laughs> but I want to post a rose to a Lancashire lass, red, I'll pick it. And I want to write to a Middlesex mate for tickets for cricket. But I want to write to the Ayrshire cheesemaker and his good cow. And it is my duty to write to the Queen at Berkshire in praise of Slough. <laughs> but I want to write to the National Poet of Wales at Ceredigion in celebration. And I want to write to the Dorset Giant in admiration. <laughs> and to the Inland Revenue in Yorkshire in desperation. <laughs> but I want to write to my uncle in Clackmanningshire in his kilt and to my scrumptious cousin in Somerset with her sidery lilt. But I want to write to two ladies in Denbyshire near Clangotland, and I want to write to a laddie in Lanarkshire, dear Loughlin. But I want to write to the Cheshire cat returning its smile. But I want to write the names of the counties down for my own child, and may they never be lost to her, or the birds of Oxfordshire. I think we all know of the anxiety over bees, particularly through um, colony collapse disorder. Um, and in parts of China, the this is so serious that the bees are disappearing in quite significant um, pockets, um, so much so that farmers are having to um, employ people to pollinate their orchards by hand, and if they don't do this, um, they'll have no fruit on their trees. And this poem um, is a response to that called The Human Bee. I became a human bee at twelve, when they gave me my small one, my flask of pollen, and I walked with the other bees out to the orchards. I walked first in apples, climbed the ladder into the childless arms of a tree and busied myself, dipping and tickling, drooping and tackling, tracing the petals' guidelines down to the stigma. Human. Humming. I knew my lessons by heart, 
the ovary would become the fruit, the ovule the seed, fertilised by my golden touch, my Midas dust. I moved to lemons, head and shoulders lost in blossom, dawn till dusk my delicate blessing. All must be docile, kind, unfruit for one fruit. Pomegranate, lychee, nectarine, peach, the rhymeless orange. And if an opening bud was out of range, I'd jump from my ladder onto a branch and reach. So that was my working life as a bee, till my eyesight blurred. <coughs> my hand was a trembling bud in the leaves. The bones of my fingers thinner than ones. And when they retired me, I had my wine from the silent vines, and I'd known love, and I'd saved some money, but I could not fly, and I made no honey. <coughs> so I'll finish with two more poems, and John will join you on the last one. poem is called Parliament. And you are going to be a writer's city. <laughs> then, in the writer's wood, every bird with a name in the world crowded the leafless trees, took its turn to whistle or croak. An owl grieved in an oak, a magpie mocked, a rook cursed from a sycamore, the cormorant spoke. Stinking seas below ill winds. Nothing swims. A vast plastic soup, thousand miles wide as long, of petroleum crap. A bird of paradise wept in a willow. The jewel of a hummingbird shrilled on the air. A stalk shored itself like a widow. The gull said. Where coral was red, now white, dead under stunned waters, the language of fish cut out at the root, mute oceans, oil like a gag on the Gulf of Mexico. A woodpecker heckled, a vulture picked with its own breast, thrice from the cockerel as ever, the macaw squawked. Nouns I know? Rain, forest, fire, ash. Chainsaw, cattle, cocaine, cash, squatters, ranchers, loggers, looters, barons, shooters. A hawk swore. A nightingale opened its throat in the garbled quote. A worm turned in the blackbird's beak, this from the crane. What I saw, slow thaw and permafrost. Broken terrain of mud and lakes, peat, broth, seepage, melt, methane, breath. A bat hung like a suicide, only a rasp of wings from the raven. A heron, a stone, a robin, blood in the written wood. So snow and darkness slowly fell. The eagle, history, in silhouette with the golden plover, 
and the albatross telling of arctic ice as the cold, hard moon carved from the earth. Thank you very much. Well, we started the reading with um, a resurrection poem, and I'd like to finish with one. Um, I read the poem Cold just before about my mother, and um, I think I didn't write for a good couple of years after my mother's death. Um, I wrote lots of children's poetry, but I couldn't, didn't want to write any adult um, poetry. Children's poetry felt like paddling at the edge of the sea, but I couldn't swim deeply, as it were. And then this poem came to me as almost a, a gift, and I was very grateful for it. And in the poem, I imagine that the first time I ever meet my mother is at the moment of her death, when I was with her. And then the poem allows us to go backwards in time and um, know each other in reverse. And there's an image of some flowers in the poem which give it its title. Premonitions. We first met when your last breath cooled in my palm like an egg. You dead and a thrush outside sang that was mourning. I backed out of the room feeling the flowers freshen and shine in my arms. The night before, we met again to unsay unbearable farewells, to see our eyes brighten with re-strung tears. Oh, I had my sudden wish, though I barely knew you, to stand at the door of your house, feeling my heartbeat calm as they carried you in home, home and healing. Then, slow weeks, removing the wheelchair, the drugs, the oxygen mask and tank, the commode, the appointment cards, until it was summer again, and I saw you open the doors to the grace of your garden. Strange and beautiful, to see the flowers close to their own premonitions, the grass sweeten and cool and green, where a bee swooned backwards out of a rose. There you were, a glass of lemony wine in each hand, walking towards me always, your magnolia tree marrying itself to the May air. How you talked, and how I listened, spellbound, humbled, daughterly, to your tall tales, your wise words, the joy of your accent, un-English, dancey, humorous, watching your ash hair flare and redden, the loving litany of who we had been, making me place my hands in your warm hands, younger than mine are now, then time, only the moon, and the balm of dust, and you, my mother.
Thank you. Thank you for coming. Just to leave me to say one more round of applause for John Sampson and Caroline Duffy. Caroline will be signing books um, outside in the foyer. If you want to get your books signed, um, you can queue up on the, on the stairs going around the corner and up the top. If you want to buy books, um, the fabulous independent bookshop, The Book Hive, are here offering them. They've got pretty much everything you could possibly want. Do get them. Thank you again for coming. If you want any tickets for our future events, you can get them from the Writer Centre website, which is writercentrenorwich.org.uk or from the Playhouse box office. Thank you for coming. Good night. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Writers' Centre Norwich. You can find out more about the organisation at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk and more podcasts like this one can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes.